arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. On today's video, I interview Jeremiah Craig. Jeremiah is a singer, songwriter, and musician, but best of all, just like me, he is a cowboy boot enthusiast. Hey, Jeremiah. Hey, How's it going? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. I can hear you just fine. Sweet. How's all it right. going? It is going great. Man, I so appreciate you being on my show. I, I just love your work. I've been following you for about two years. Oh, so cool. That's about from when I started. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been since your early days. Um, we'll just go on and get right into it because I'll do a little bit of an introduction uh, beforehand. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you say you're a musician and a cowboy boot enthusiast. I'd say maybe moving toward a cowboy boot nut. <laughs> maybe I'm already there, I think. <laughs> I just wasn't, I guess, so fond of sharing it before two years ago. Uh I have been into cowboy boots for like 15 years and uh, I never thought anybody would be that interested in the footwear that I chose to sport. I mean, it was totally done out for practical reasons because the sneakers and other types of shoes that I'd had before then just broke consistently, no matter the brand, it was just a pain. So when I saw my brother starting to wear cowboy boots, um, I decided to give it a shot too. And then I was hooked. And then after like about, uh, three years, I had four pairs and I had four pairs until I started the YouTube channel about two years ago. So, uh, throughout all of that, I've just put them to the test time and time again through going on tour. Cause I'm a musician. Uh, I went to school for marketing. Uh, to learn how to market myself so that I could do music full time eventually. And this year, 2020, especially over the last few months here, I'm be being able to do the things that I want full time finally. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. I'm super grateful for everybody's attention and the, the, the fact that I get to do this now with so much time and effort. Well, you were, okay, so you were saying that it was just the practicality of the boots that they were so rugged that they would outlast anything else you had, you were wearing. That's the reason why I stuck with them. Um, it didn't hurt that they looked good, but the fact that I could get them resold after I got a, a, a hole in them, like my, my boulets have been resold six times. Uh, it, it just, it just kept me with them. And it made me realize how much quality goes into, how much durability goes into these cowboy boots. And when people say that's just for cowboys, I think it's just for people who need a, a durable, long-lasting piece of footwear that can just be there, that can show up. Because when I'm on the road, when I'm on tour and stuff, I need something that I can count on, you know? I don't want to be um, stuck someplace with a pair of shoes that are broken and then have it to go find some new shoes or something. I want something that's that I can trust. And a cowboy boot is something that you can trust day in and day out. Yeah. Just to share with you just how rugged cowboy boots are. I'm 58 years old. I've been wearing cowboy boots since I was a baby. And uh, when I was around 13 years old, 12, 13, 14 years old, we played a sport that, and not rodeo, a field sport where cowboy boots were the required sporting gear. And that was kick the can. <laughs> and, yes. And as 13-year-old un, unsupervised boys are, you know, we're not the brightest bunch in the in, uh, bananas in the bunch. And getting the can over the imaginary goal line was the secondary goal. The primary goal was to shatter your opponent's ankles. And back in the 70s, when I was a teenager, the cowboy boots were incredibly pointed. And we called them cockroach killers because, you know, you'd say you could kick a cockroach in the corner. But 
to play kick the can, you know, woe unto anyone who was foolish enough to wear tennis shoes. Um, the only other uh, boot that was al- would be allowed was some of us were getting just big enough to wear our dad's uh, work boots. And so you had dads with steel-toed work boots, and literally we would be out playing kick the can with these pointy-toed cowboy boots and steel-toed work boots. And that, that was our game every day at lunch. So, and, and our boots lasted. Nice. That's rough. That's rough. Yeah. That's a serious yeah. sport. Yeah, we were, we were 13. So you just get on YouTube and watch what 13-year-old boys do, and they haven't changed much. Right. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I'm sort of looking at some of my notes here. Um, so it was just the ruggedness that got it started. You know, you got a pretty good fan base. Do you, are you able to track where all your fans are? Do you have any from countries other than the United States? Yes. I, I look at my analytics on a regular basis to see where people are coming from. Uh, probably the most folks out of, out of the United States come from the UK and in places in Europe. I get messages from folks in Denmark. Um, I got a message from somebody in Germany this morning. Uh, so there's, there's lots of folks in Europe that uh, are interested in wearing cowboy boots and also in Australia. And I'm also seeing a lot of activity recently in the Philippines. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of folks in the Philippines are really starting to get interested in cowboy boots. In fact, if you look at Google Trend data, where Google basically will tell you how many people search for a specific term in a specific region, if you search for cowboy boots, in like uh, the Philippines or in 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 that area, uh, it's actually skyrocketed over the past year or so. So there's a lot of interest all over the world, but I'm really kind of impressed and surprised about um, the Philippines right now. So I was wondering what would be the most exotic place that uh, you've been able to track that were interested in cowboy boots. I'd have to say that's probably the most surprising for sure. Well, is there a difference between their tastes as far as what they're into, the type of boot, uh, what kind of skins, what kind of heel or, uh, you know, toe, whatever? Not that I've been able to find out so far. Um, that's a, it's, it's sort of a, a tough market to crack for me right now to figure out like what they're most interested in. Uh, especially since I'm still trying to grow as much as possible in the United States first. So my, my primary focus is in the United States. I don't, um, I don't want to ignore anybody from out of this, out of the United States or anything like that. Um, but, uh, it's, it's where my, most of my people are right now. So, um, right now I'm sort of just trying to focus on growing, that and and keeping everybody in the United States interested as well. Um, And I do have content coming up for folks internationally as well. So I'm trying to include as many people as possible because really when it comes down to it, now that this sort of thing has brought attention to cowboy boots, I want everybody in the world to be wearing cowboy boots. Nice. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, some of the challenges that you've been through in making your channel. So it would be anything from, you know, the learning curve on the software and filming to, we'll we'll get into some, some other stuff, but just some of the uh, challenges you went through just getting the quality of your programming that you've got now. Yeah. I, I mean, quality is a, is sort of a subjective term because people could be, Uh, filming on their phone and still get like 6 million views. Like I saw a a video on YouTube. My wife sent it to me about this dude spraying um, an aerosol can through a mask to see if it would start something on fire to see if masks work. And that was just done on a phone. So quality is completely subjective. The thing that um, the thing that I had to learn the most was how to get people to watch or how to get people to listen to my music. So I actually started YouTubing 
in 2010. Uh, if you go back my channel, you can sort of find some really old videos. Um, but I didn't really understand what people wanted to see. Like I was coming at it more from an artist perspective than a business perspective. So I would just be posting random music videos, um, just funny stuff that I thought of that never took off at all. Like I would rarely get over 100 views on any of these videos. And then I started using some of the things that I would learn at my marketing jobs that I had uh, at the time, whether being an in-house marketer or working in an agency. And I started using some of the keyword research to apply that to the things that I'm interested in. So like I enjoy coffee, you know, I enjoy beer and wine, comic books, cowboy boots, things like that. And I started to search for things that I was interested in that I could feel like I could talk about um, in content. And I noticed that there was a large opportunity in the cowboy boot world where there was a lot of people searching for things, but there was very limited amount of content in the space. So I decided to test it out. Um, and in 2018, I put up my first cowboy boot video and it was like the first time that I'd ever gotten more than, I don't know, 300 views on something uh, in, in such a short amount of time about something that I was so passionate about. And like I said at the beginning of this, I, I never thought that anybody was interested in the types of footwear that other people chose to wear. Like I thought it was just like whatever. They're on the ground, who cares? But there is a very large interest in them. And I think that um, a lot of people feel the same way that I feel about them um, based off of the, the, um, the reaction that I've had from everybody so far. So it took eight years for me to figure that out from YouTube. So it took a long time. That is the most difficult thing to overcome, I believe, as a content creator, is actually making content that people want to watch or consume. Right. <clears throat> have, uh, in your journey, have you partnered up with certain individuals or certain companies that have helped you along the way? Yeah, definitely. So I, I ever since I started doing the, um, boot stuff, I've started partnering with a few different companies. Uh, Yeehaw Cowboy, Jose Diaz at Yeehaw Cowboy was the first to collab or yeah, they were the first to collab on a large, um, actually agreement when I went into it and I agreed with them that let's try to do something together. Technically the first one was Tacovas, but I sort of sidestepped that. I was like, I'm going to do a video about Tacovas and then I'm just going to send the boots back because I just started the YouTube channel. And I couldn't afford a new pair of boots. So I just said I was going to send them back. But after Tacovas saw the video, they said I should just keep them and make more content. So technically that's kind of a partnership um, since they let me keep the boots. But the first true one was with Yeehaw Cowboy. And I, I started doing um, a lot of uh, content with him. And that is through mainly a, a promo code uh, where if somebody uses my code, they get 10% uh, off when they buy stuff from that. And I get a 5% kickback. So it's just a nice way to help people out and, and then they can help me too without having them to pay like a subscription fee. Cause that's sort of important to me. I want to focus mainly on business partnerships than having people, the people, the view, the viewers pay me because the, the brands are going to want to take advantage of the audience anyways. So they should be paying for that. The audience shouldn't be paying to then see content that the brands want to see. Uh, them to see. So I'm, I'm trying to keep it. Um, I'm trying to keep it even because I don't want a ton of sponsored content. I still want to make stuff that I'm interested in and that people are interested in, but I, I, I'm also really excited about the brand partnerships I have coming up. Like, um, I just, I just made a, a pretty big, uh, for at least for me, a, a pretty big deal with Ariat. Uh, for some sponsored videos 
every month for the rest of this year. So that is huge for me. And I'm really excited about that because I end up doing videos about Ariat anyways, because they're such a highly searched brand and people have so much interest and brand loyalty to them. So it's in my best interest to do those videos. So I feel like it's only makes sense for them to pay me to do them. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, let's, let's bounce around a little bit. Um, Cause I've, I've just got a list of questions and I just sort of uh, looking at some of them. I love your opening. You know, you throw the boot up in the air and it's in slow-mo tumbling. Uh, and I work in the film industry off and on. So I'm curious, how many takes did you have to do before you got that perfect shot? I think five. I just was messing around on my, like, I was, I was like, oh, my phone has a slow-mo. I'm going to put it on the ground and throw a boot up in the air. And it took me like five times to get it right. Cause I didn't want it to, I didn't want the boot to land on the phone, you know, so, but it needed a good image of it. Um, but it didn't take too long. Okay. Well that, that's really great. Cause I've, like I say, I work in the industry off and on and uh, things like that can often take half a day, a full day. You just keep doing it till you get it right. And it, it just yeah. looks perfect. Um, I will tell you, you have made me paranoid about getting gas, wearing my cowboy boots. I won't do it. I won't <laughs> Other do folks it. have told me that too. Yeah, it's so scary, right? I mean, every time I take the, the nozzle out and I'm just like, I got to keep it upright, got to keep it upright until we get it. Like it scarred me too, for real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, if we need gas, I either make my wife get out and get it <clears throat> if I'm wearing my boots or um, <laughs> I'll wait until the next day when I'm wearing something else. Um, <laughs> Tell me, is there anything in the boot industry as a whole, not particularly necessarily one, one bootmaker, but as a whole that you'd want to change if you could? I know for me, and I've heard you talk a little bit about it, is I would love to have universal sizing for boots because I wear usually a 10 and a half but I've put on nine and a half. So I've put on 11 and a half and I've had to do D's and double E's. They're just all over the place. Are there things like that, that you would, if you could sort of make a universal standard that you'd like to encourage the boot industry to adopt? I think that it is a sizing problem. I think that uh, there needs to be more sizing options. I'm, I'm fine with the fact that some brands are different because people need different things uh, based off of their, how their foot is. I want to see more widths. I think that if we, if we go back to the, the, the early nineties and before then, when we actually had a lot of B widths for guys, you know, A widths, C widths, every single width, that was out there right now we only have for the majority of brands a d width and a double e and for me i am a 12b but i didn't know that until i started the channel i i just figured that i'm a 12 size foot but a 10 and a half size boot but then i actually tried a 12b and it was incredible like my mind exploded so if more people understood the facts that you don't have to size down. You can get something that actually fits the width of your foot. Um, and I feel like that's just better for the consumer. Right now, since brands only make Ds and double Es, it's better for them because they have to make less and they save more money. So, and then they're selling the boots at the exact same price, so they're making more margin. And I just think that's cheap. I think that's a cop-out. If you're going to make boots, I feel like you should make boots at every single width for every, uh, for, for both men and women. Um, that's, that's probably my biggest pet peeve is, is, uh, the industry standard on widths. Yeah. My wife really can't wear cowboy boots, uh, because she wears quad or triple A's and, uh, she has found a few in the children's section. We were at Cavender's and a lady took her over and said, let me take you into the ch children's section. And she was actually able to find a pair of boots there. But as far as in women's shoes, it's just, it's not possible. Yeah. It's so tough. And the fact that if a guy 
has a small narrow foot and then they're like well we don't have anything for you in this section let's go over to the women's section and yeah there is isn't very much difference between how they're built but it's just like if you're shopping for boots you want to be shopping with your buddies you know you're going you're being taken to a whole different section of the store and you're and you're and you're not with your buddies anymore it kind of makes the whole shopping experience uh more lackluster and disappointing so to be taken away from the section where you feel like you belong is is a little bit awkward so if we just focus more on actual widths and sizing these boots correctly uh, i think everybody would have a much better experience in cowboy boots and uh and feel better about them all the way around are there any myths about cowboy boots that you are trying to dispel you know i i grew up in uh, kind of i grew up mostly in mississippi and lots of us raised cattle and horses and stuff so everybody was wearing cowboy boots but it's i found it interesting that you've talked about some of your viewers that maybe some people would kind of poke fun at them for wearing cowboy boots. And that's just incredible to me because like I said, I grew up, everybody wore them. My grandmother wore them. My mother wore them. Yeah. So uh, hearing that is odd. So are there myths about cowboy boots that you try to dispel? Oh yeah. There's probably like three big ones. Uh, one is that cowboy boots are uncomfortable. Uh, two is that, only racists wear cowboy boots and three would be, you know, that water will shrink cowboy boots uh, if the cowboy boots are too big. Uh, I see these all the time on Twitter. Like I'll just search cowboy boots on Twitter just to see what people are saying because one, it helps me engage with people and two, it gives me ideas to make videos about. So if I know where people are coming from in the, in the main pop culture about where they stand about cowboy boots, I can make content to then um, uh, answer those things. So probably the biggest one is, are cowboy boots comfortable? Yeah, they totally are. Um, I think most of the problem is after, you know, talking about that sizing issue um, with the widths is that people don't know what size to get so that when they get the same size as what they have their shoes, uh, they don't focus on width. And when they don't focus on width, they end up getting a boot that's too tight or, you know, it's, it's this or it's that. And it ends up being not comfortable. And then they make the generalization, generalization that all cowboy boots are uncomfortable. Um, and I feel like that's something that is the industry's fault because they've failed so badly at educating the customers. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I wouldn't be so successful if, the brands actually made the content that I'm making. So they need to do what I'm doing. Um, and if they had been, then I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now about this. So um, the other thing is the, that, that uh, a lot of people on uh, different social media platforms uh, will make the generalization that if you wear cowboy boots, you are uh, a Republican or a racist or this or that. And that's just more generalizations that I feel is just unnecessary. <laughs> so <laughs> I try to, I try to call that out when I can as well. Yeah. All right. So you're talking to a newbie, someone who's never owned cowboy boots. What would you suggest should be their first pair color style, whatever? Uh, it's, it completely depends on their tastes. Um, I say go for what you are most interested in. I, I, I don't think that there's any rules to it. I mean, there's so many different styles and so many different uh, shape, heel sizes, toe shapes, you know, uh, it's, it's so different. I would say that just think about what you're gonna be using them for because a lot of times a leather sole isn't gonna be as, uh, practical as a rubber sole in some situations. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. Um, but I would say that if somebody wants to get a first pair of cowboy boots to, to take the time and try to learn about them a little bit more about how they're supposed to fit, because a lot of people will go into some of these places and get fit wrong 
by the people working there. I mean, I can't hold it against some of the folks in some of these um, chain chain retailers. Like, uh, I don't know, so I don't want to call anybody out, but when people go into the chain boot stores, sometimes the people working there are just there to get paid. And that's fine. Like, I have nothing against that, but oftentimes they might not fit a person correctly. And that will lead to them sort of uh, disqualifying cowboy boots as an option in the future. So if you're interested in cowboy boots, try to try to educate yourself as much as possible before going in to buy a pair someplace. I know you love your boulets, uh, but do you have a favorite uh, brand of boot other than the boulets? Uh, I love boulets quite a bit just because like I've had them for, for over a decade, three pairs have all, uh, they've all performed the same. Uh, and I'm just really impressed by them. However, I have also been recently very impressed by Hondo. I tried Hondo around a year and a half ago for the first time. And I got a pair of 2670s. And also recently a pair of the 7875 model with the rubber sole. And I think they're built very well for the price point. I mean, you look at these boots, there are a lot of them are coming in at $200 to $250. Same price point as Ariat, Justin, a lot of these other really big well-known brands, but Hondo is making these boots the way that they used to be made for the most part. Uh, and they just perform really, really well. They do have uh, a couple of little weak spots, but for the most part, I think they're the best for, I think they're one of the best for the money that you can get. I think they are right up there with Boulet for me right now um, in terms of quality, uh, just because, I mean, these things, they're just built so well. I, I'm so impressed with Hondo. I know you uh, seem to talk a lot that the best boots are made in the USA and possibly Mexico as well. Is that right? It depends. I mean, Sp there's good boots coming out of Spain. I think it, there's also uh, crap boots coming out of the United States too. I mean, Abilene, they cut a lot of corners. Um, they make decent boots, uh, but they, they're definitely cheap. Um, so I, it, I don't think that it's depends on where the boot is made. I think it's about how the boot is made. And there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of great boot makers all over the world that put a lot of pride, passion, quality experience into their boots, you know, from Spain to Mexico to United States. So it's, uh, I, I will say that there are a lot of United States makers that do make great boots but it's not like a hard and fast rule. Okay. Um, I know you uh, interview a lot of custom boot makers. If you had your fantasy pair of boots, price was no object. Describe those boots from you know, what kind of heel, what kind of toe, what kind of uh, sole, leather, everything. Oh, geez. I would love to have uh, an all alligator pair sometime. So vamp shaft, maybe a French toe on there um, with like a, a one and three eighths to one and five eighths heel. I just love the look of all gator. At some point I'm going to have an all gator boot. They just look so classy. And it's like the, I feel like it's that just top level cowboy boot look that uh that is is it just is amazing i mean you look at the boot and you're like wow it's all gator and those tiles those huge tiles all over the boot it just looks so good so i'd have to say that's probably my dream boot right now um but you know i also am curious to try to work with boot makers in the future um because they know a lot about how things work, how colors fit together, how, uh, how they can best uh, 
bring their own artistry forward and craftsmanship in these boots. So I've, I'm also really excited to work with boot makers in the future. That's going to be way down the road on like custom pairs of boots. But like recently, I've just been dreaming about like an all gator pair of boots. If you could have as many boots as you wanted, how many pairs of boots would you realistically have? I saw a guy on the internet, I was looking up, he has a collection of several thousand, mm -hmm. just this huge, huge collection. How many would you have if you could just, again, price is no object, what would you have? I have no idea. Like, I'm not gonna, I don't feel like I should stop at any time. I, I could, I could see myself as having like a thousand at some point in my life. Like, I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> I, I agree with you because I want something that's going to match each outfit I've got. The, and the difference between a brown gator and a brown tehu and a brown ostrich, I mean, it's just all the difference in the world. They're completely different. So, yep. uh, you know, it depends on the, on the look that you want. And uh, uh, on, your, on your fan base – is it it's mostly men do you do you know how many women you have as your as is your fan base about 10 percent right now okay and you know there's a real difference in women's footwear and men's you know women can get away with anything they can wear all the bling and all the stuff and it looks cute as a button on them and just looks unless you if you know this reference, Porter Wagner and the Chuck Wagon gang. If you're yep. Porter Wagner, then you can have all the bling on your boots that you want. But if you're any other guy, not so much. Um, <laughs> but there's a downside to that in that I don't think women's footwear tends to be as great in, in quality as good men's are because they just are pumping them out. I think sometimes we're just like, okay, we're going to wear this boot to the prom, and if it falls apart afterwards, we don't care, whereas guys are a little tougher to please with that. So are, do the boot makers put as much quality into the women's wear, to your knowledge? As far as I've seen, uh, yes. I, I mean, when I was at the um, – I, I can't talk from any specific brand level, but when I was at – uh, the Los Altos factory in Mexico last year, uh, I saw them making both men's and women's boots. And for the most part, when they were actually making the cowboy boots, they're making them exactly the same. So I, I don't know about some of the other brands with um, different sections of the factories and stuff like that. Um, I have seen some cowboy boot companies okay. The internet, different factories from different places. Talking about uh, the custom like boot makers that you've been in, like uh, Mexico, interviewing every once in a while. Has the internet helped them? Line that's coming or from Indonesia, and in that has it case, actually yes, I would agree made the big boot makers have an even greater share? Women boots made coming more out of that Indonesian factory. I would say that they are usually a little bit makes it they cut easier more for everybody to be on the same playing field. So the Internet I would say is, that maybe I think the, the internet brand is beautiful. has multiple I love factories, uh, but if they I only have like see one it as everyone being the same free area, to freely really express themselves in, in, to in my pursue their dreams I have, I have yet to more easily. Several and I've seen bootmakers, custom bootmakers, really succeed at this. Lisa Sorrell is probably the best example. I mean, she started on YouTube so, so early. And then developed a DVD course to uh, help new custom boot makers learn how to make boots. And I talked to about uh, three to five custom boot makers who say that they've gotten that DVD set and it's helped them become the boot maker who they are today. So that probably wouldn't be as easy for Sir Lisa Sorrell to do without the internet. And it would give the bigger brands a better opportunity to, to take more market share just because the traditional marketing uh, depends on how much money you have to go to market to get the most eyeballs. But online, you don't necessarily have to have as big of a budget as Ariat to make that impression on people. It's just 
do you want to put in the time or the money? So for me, it's like, I don't have the money, so I have to put in the time. Um, Lisa Sorrell did, did the same thing way before um, I even started any of this cowboy boot content is she was making that uh, and, and made a huge impression on the cowboy boot industry. Uh, I feel like, especially in the custom cowboy boot world um, and without the internet, that wouldn't have been possible. So I feel like it's given custom boot makers, smaller brands, a better opportunity to compete with the bigger brands. So it's custom uh, boot making. Is it a growing or a dying art or is it just sort of hanging on? It seems to me like it's growing. Like everybody uh, might come into it and be like, wow, people still do this. Or is there like a market for this anymore? But I've talked to so many young people in their thirties who are, who are just going out on their own and starting it like right now. And right now seems like a, a really difficult time to start a business with um, coronavirus and pandemic and every, no, you, you name it. There's a lot going on right now, but they still see it as being an enormous opportunity and a prime time to make that jump, to go full time into custom boot making. And uh, so from my perspective, I see it as a growing art because there are just so many more young people who appreciate the quality, the, artistry, the craftsmanship that goes into making cowboy boots. And I'm really excited about the future, you know, 10, 20 years from now, because I think it's going to grow even more. Um, more people will be interested in getting custom cowboy boots because uh, as, as time goes on, more people will see the value in actually investing in a quality piece of footwear that fits them perfectly, it is made for them. So there, there, there's this shift going on, I feel like, to people wanting stuff that will last rather than buying something every year to then throw into a landfill someplace. Right, right. Well, this has been great talking about the boots, but I also want to talk about your music because you are a great musician. You're a singer, a songwriter, and a musician, right? Yes, thank you. Yes, Um you lean toward folk, country, and ballads. Is that correct? Yeah, I love telling stories in music. It's my favorite part of it. I, I will tell you, I think it was night before last, my wife and I uh, saw your video on Do All Ballads Have to Be Sad? Can There Be Happy Ballads? And my wife said, hands down, that the uh, Fox Ballad was her favorite song that she's heard you sing Oh, cool. That's so cool. I'm yeah. so glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so th the reason you like those types, types of uh, songs is that you like storytelling. Yes, I do. And I like the history behind it, too. I mean, when I originally went to school, I was going to be a history teacher. I went to um, enter the field of education. So I love history, stories in them, and then telling those stories, you know, passing them on. And when it came to music, it, 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 it was the same deal. I love the old stories. I love telling stories. I like um, making stories and then um, putting them online or putting them someplace to, so they can last forever. I mean, it's, it's, it's really fun uh, not only taking the traditional folk ballads and then reworking them for the modern day, still acoustic, but you know, making them uh, a little bit more approachable or contextual to what's going on, but also writing the songs that I feel tell my story and the stories of others too during this time. Yeah. So who are some of your favorite musicians? And they can be country and uh, ballad, but they can also be classical or jazz, whatever. Yeah, I love, uh, I love Bob Dylan. Tom Waits, I like Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. I like um, Earl Scruggs, who invented the three-finger picking banjo style in bluegrass. I really like a jazz artist, uh, a saxophone player by the name of Kamasi Washington. The way that he can uh, speak through a saxophone and the emotion that he has when he plays is incredible. I love the way that he plays. 
Uh, and I would have to say that another new folk band that I've been listening to a lot of is Hannah Sanders and Ben Savage out of the UK. They, they do great work too. Okay. Why the guitar? The guitar, because it's so versatile. Like I need, I started playing on the banjo, but I quickly came to the realization that there's less of an audience for all banjo music, especially as a solo musician. Um, it, it takes an extreme level to make that work. Bella Fleck can do it, but he's like one of the only ones. So uh, I started writing songs and I made the realization that if I wanted more people to listen, I needed an instrument that had more frequency range and that could be better used as a solo acoustic instrument. So I started learning the guitar. And uh, that was after I had already learned the banjo and harmonica. So I was able to fill out some of the space on the guitar with the harmonica when I wasn't sin singing. And uh, I just sort of stuck with it just because it's the most versatile and most approachable instrument for a solo musician, um, at least in, in my perspective, as also being a very portable instrument. Right. Um now, of course, before COVID, you were doing a lot of touring. Uh, two questions. Number one, have you started back touring? And do you have any stories? I mean, when I think about touring, I can't get the Blues Brothers out of my head where they're in the cage and uh, in the bar and people are throwing things at them. Have you experienced anything like that when you were touring? Oh, yeah. People, there's always those crazy moments that uh, get get a little bit nerve wracking sometimes. Uh, I would have to say the first tour that I was on uh, with my band at the time, we were called the Jack Swift Band, and the craziest show that I've ever had was with them. We were in a place called New Hope, Pennsylvania, and we had a show there playing uh, for just pretty much the, the locals and New Hope is also where artists from New York City go to sort of do that, you know, artistic retreat and get some nature or whatever. And uh, so it's like a, a very strange mix of people. Um, and we started playing and we actually got in a little bit of trouble with a motorcycle gang in the area who didn't like our sax player because of the color of his skin. So they started some trouble with us during our first break. And then <laughs> they were waiting outside for us with baseball bats and pipes and things like that to, you know, pretty much kill us. So luckily the, uh, luckily the bar owner had a lot of pull in the town because that establishment was one of, the most well-known places for being the most peaceful. So he went out and he talked to this motorcycle gang and he said, listen, if you guys do this here, I will never be able to make as much money because this is my reputation. So he basically made them, um, he basically convinced them not to do it for purely economic reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, uh, okay. Now I read, I've been reading some of your articles on your website and I looked at the one you wrote about Jethro Tull and the remixing of albums. And uh, you seemed fairly knowledgeable about the engineering side. So is, uh, are you fairly knowledgeable about engineering music? I would say I've, I've dabbled in it. I worked as an audio engineer during college. Um, I used to be a live audio engineer for wedding bands. So I, it's something that I would do pretty much every weekend. Um, and then I got to the point where I, was, I mix my own music now that I record. So if you've listened to anything from 2015 and beyond that I've released, I've, all, I've mixed all of that. And sure, it's not the best stuff, but when you listen to um, something that you are really familiar with, uh, that's older, like the Thick as a Brick from uh, the 70s, and then they, they remastered it for the 2000s, 
it, it's it, you can hear such a big difference um, from especially when you listen to both the vinyls and that's something that I really enjoy because I like to hear what people focus on during different time periods um, and the traits that they bring out in the music like uh, the the different guitar parts or the flute parts that might be in the background on thick as a brick weren't as um weren't as noticeable on that original mixing as it was on the second remix and sometimes i feel like the remix is just a a marketing ploy to get you to buy the album all over again but in a lot of cases it's not um especially with some of these class classic albums where the technology is so different nowadays um, it's just a lot of fun to revisit and hear it from a different perspective, but have it be the exact same recording. So is learning a little bit about the engineering side is if you were giving advice to a up and coming musician, is that something you would advise a young mu musician to at least have some knowledge of? Yeah, definitely. Um, to know how music works and to how and how you want it to sound is really important to get your message across, to get your stories across. I mean, there's always going to be somebody better. Usually musicians aren't the best at mixing and mastering their own music. That's why producers exist, is to help that creative process. Um, but if you have an idea and you can have those intelligent conversations when you do have a producer, then I feel like it's better um, because you've tried it yourself in your bedroom or recording someplace else and then mixed it yourself and realized that geez this just isn't sounding how i want then you go on youtube and you figure out what other people have done you try this you try that and yeah it takes a it takes a lot longer but at least then when you have a producer when you are working with a record label hopefully that is in an arrangement that is in your best interest rather than in the label's best interest, then you have some education and experience to where you can have that, um, you can have an educated conversation about how the music should sound and what should be done to it. Okay. Plugged or unplugged? Do you, do you prefer doing just acoustic or do you like doing uh, electric music just as well? I like making acoustic music the best, but I got nothing against electric music. I've dabbled in it. Um, I've dabbled with some producers and DJs uh, beats and writing songs to them. So like, it's just the most fun for me to, to pick up and play. I like to just, um, to just do it. And I feel like, with the acoustic guitar that I'm able to do that the best for me, for my, for my um, abilities and the way that I like to tell stories and sing. I just, it, the acoustic guitar is just, is just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Two different, two different uh, periods of, of time. Contemporarily, what band, if you could play with, would you, your dream dream opportunity be to play with and then maybe what individual if you there was a soloist that you could do a duet with or something who would you want to do that with i would love to learn and play with chris Thiele. i mean that dude is so good he has so much musical knowledge and has such a brain for it i just know that i would be able to learn so much from him so my my perspective on this, it would be like coming at it from who can I learn from the most? Um, and I feel like Chris Thiele has so much knowledge. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a mandolin player um, and he's probably the best mandolin player in the world. And I'm not a mandolin player, but just musically and the way that he can, that he can sing and the passion that he brings to it and the way that he explores music because he'll do a bluegrass album, but then he'll also do a classical album. And it's crazy what this guy can do. He's a freaking genius. So for one person, I would love to do something with him. And as far as like a group, I would want to probably 
play with um, the fleck tones. <laughs> <laughs> Because again, I want to learn more musically and geez, those guys, every single guy in that band is just incredible. Like the best at their instrument. You got Victor Wooten, Bella Fleck, got all these guys and they are so good individually. When you get them all together, it's mind blowing. Okay. Now what about in the past? This could be anybody from Johnny Cash to Mozart. I mean, who would you who would you want to play with individually and with a band? Uh, I would want to, I would want to play with uh, Glenn Campbell, I think, because his, his, the way that he could sing was just pitch perfect. He had such a good voice and uh, you know, the rhinestone cowboy classic song, of course, but everything that this guy sang was just like, how, how do you do that? I would love to play uh, with with him, and it's too bad that we don't have him around anymore. Um, because I agree. He was such a talent, such a talent, and he could even act. I mean, True Grit was so good. Um, and then a group in the past, you asked. Yes. Um, I would say I would like to play with in the past. Oh, geez, there's so many good ones. Uh, I want to say... Geez, you're really... This is such a hard question, and nothing, and I haven't even thought about it ever. <laughs> right, we can come back to it. We can come back to it. No big deal. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to say Jethro Tull, but they're still around. Okay. Um, all right. Your uh, your dream performance. It's you. You're playing solo, packed house, Carnegie Hall, Grand Ole Opry. Which one? Uh, I I would probably say Grand Ole Opry, um, just because of the history there. That would be incredible. And uh, I mean, that's that's top level right there. Is I th I feel like. Grand Old Opry for me is um, is an even bigger honor than Carnegie Hall, just because of the history there and who they've who's been on that stage, um, everything that's gone on there. In my opinion, Grand Old Opry is top. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, when you're writing your music, do you have the lyrics in your head first? Or do you hear a tune or does it go back and forth? I'm assuming when you're doing um, the little, little songs at the end of your uh, re boot reviews that you've, you know, got a little bit of the, the song in your head, but when you're writing another something else, can it go either way? Yeah, it goes, it goes always all the time. Like sometimes in order for those, songs at the end of the boot videos to go faster. I will scratch out a couple of lines, uh, but other times I will just sing them. Um, I won't write anything down. So when it comes to actually writing the music, I like to think about what I'm gonna write about uh, ahead of time a lot of times, because I, I do write or try to write things here and there, but when I'm not inspired, it doesn't end up being a keeper, which is fine. Like uh, a lot of people want everything that they write to be a keeper, but really I only have a 10% rate of songs that I write that I actually will play and record. So it, it goes, it happens always. So sometimes I'll sit down and make uh, a, a chord progression and then write the lyrics. Sometimes I'll write the lyrics and then put it to music. So it, it happens. I, I'm not going to argue with the way that songs want to come to me. I'm just going to try to write them down and put them out in the world in however way it, it happens. Right. And so the way you're talking, you do read music, right? I do not you read don't. music. I, okay. I, I, I took music theory I have uh, in college and I have some education and can figure it out but it's not like I can read music like I can read words. It's, it, it takes much longer for me to understand what's going on in a piece of 
sheet music um, than what it would for other musicians. So I, you're doing it all tablature. I do it by ear. By ear. You don't, you don't even read tabs. You just do it by ear. I, I read tabs when I play the banjo. That's how I learned how to play the banjo. Um, but everything else with the harmonica and the guitar, I tried to pretty much do by ear. Well, that would lead me to my next question because I played uh, a little bit of blues, but flamenco guitar, like I think before you were born. And uh, when I was studying classical, the, um, or when I first took lessons, the guy asked me, why do you want to read music? And what do you want to play? And I said, well, I'm mostly playing flamenco. And he said, well, really none of that's written in music. And because the, the guitar is, can be open D, open E, drop D, you know, you can put a capo on, you can just, he said the notes are just going all over the place. So if you don't play classical, what do you want to learn music for? But, um, so that leads me to ask, do you manipulate the guitar sound by doing things like open E and open D and uh, things like that? Do you really tune your guitar differently? Oh yeah, for sure. Because you get different inspirations from the way that the guitar sounds. And uh, I do write a lot of stuff in standard, but I do love drop D quite a bit. I do write a lot of stuff in drop D, um, not so much in open D or any open cording. I have written a few songs in this chord, in this tuning style that I just made up. Um, and which I'll do every once in a while because you need different forms of inspiration to get different kinds of um, songs out. I don't want all my songs to sound the same. So I'll often just rely on different tunings to then inspire me to write something a little different. So the one tuning that I have that I have like four songs for, I believe is um, E, G sharp, C sharp, G sharp, B, E. So that is a di that's a little different, but it allows for me to play some open chords that sound really nice when uh, I'm just playing solo. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, we talked about your favorite boots, your fantasy boot. Okay, your fantasy guitar. Again, price is no object. You can have this free guitar. What would you have? I would say that ever since I played, oh, geez, I think it was the Gibson J. 20 i think the model was i would want that one but i love my martin dcx 1e i absolutely i i think it's a perfect one for me the only reason why i would want that gibson j20 i believe the model number is is because of the sound difference the sound on that is and it's the same one i, I believe that uh john lennon played on a regular basis it just sounds so it doesn't sustain as much as the martin does which leaves a lot of space and it, it it feels like an amazing when i was playing it on my first album when i um on a few songs uh at the recording studio where i uh recorded that it, it i made this connection with with it as um being sort of a a dead sound but very lively at the same time it's just i'm saying dead just because it doesn't sustain as much uh, like cheap guitars do but it just sounds so much deeper than the cheap guitars and i oh and i fell in love with that sound then and after looking at the prices online way back when i've just sort of not revisited it to because i don't want to torture myself but it, they do run to the multiple thousands of dollars so i would love to have one of those guitars just because i feel like it would bring more options to the style of music that I write. Because I, I think a lot of people don't understand that the, the instrument that you write something on has a very huge influence on how the music that you write sounds and how it comes out. It's like I get inspired by playing different instruments. So if I write a song on my cheap Rogue guitar that I found um, in, on a bridge in in Kent, Washington, I might, I might write a song on that and I would have never written that song 
on my Martin just because that guitar influences me in a different way. Um, it's like each guitar has its own spirit, kind of, if you want to say it in a simple way that has no truth to it. Or maybe it does. I don't know. But every instrument, I feel like, inspires me differently. Right. We've sort of touched on this a little bit, but I was thinking about your article, Five Reasons You Should Shamelessly Love John Denver. And you talked about yes. that he was a great storyteller. He had a, a great message. And is, is that, is your primary goal when you're making music, is it to tell a story with a message or is it to entertain? And that can be making people laugh, making people cry, or is it really just a true combination of both? It's a combination of both. Yeah. I mean, every song that isn't going to have this deep message that's going to change somebody's life, but it might change how they feel at that moment. Right. Cause I'll have, um, I'll have murder ballads that I've written that might not really be the best thing for one person to listen to at one point in time. But in other times, like it might inspire somebody not to take that direct course of action, right? Or to make them chill out because they realize that it's not, because that's what murder ballads in the past basically are, are written. Um, that somebody um, kills somebody else. And then at the end of the song, most of the time they regret it um, for one reason or another. So uh, I feel like those murder ballads do do uh, a lot for just just setting an example for how people, I guess, should behave in everyday life. But, you know, we don't listen to it all that time because at this point, we, we pretty much know that it's wrong to kill people. So um, a lot of times it's just for entertainment, just for like the same for the same for the same enjoyment that you would watch an action movie or whatever right so it, it's it, a lot of times it doesn't go very deep but i do like to write music with messages as well um that that um also aren't going to be right for people to listen to every moment of the day either so it's, i'm trying to like write a whole bunch of different songs for for people who might want to be in a specific mood at a specific time and have a story that is related in that, whether it be true and meaningful or not. Okay. All right. And um, I think maybe the last question is if you uh, could give some advice uh, about your career that you could give to someone about your career, they're starting out with music. We've talked about that. It'd be good for them to have some engineering knowledge, but um my goodness, you've been doing it a long time. You've toured. You've been through a lot. Now, especially in the new world with Corona, what what advice would you give young uh, musicians just starting out that they're trying to build their career? To never stop and never afraid to be wrong. Um, I've had a very hard time trying to overcome um, my thought of is this wrong to approach it this way and i've tried to i've i've overcome that by just releasing so much so if somebody doesn't like a particular video or a particular song that i write they know that it's okay because there will be more so a lot of musicians will release one video to get attention, will release one song to get attention, and when that doesn't hit, they'll quit. But that's not the way that things are anymore because we have the internet and there is a flood of content. There is more content now than ever before. So it's gonna take time. It took, it took me, uh, let's say I graduated college in 2010. So it is now 2020 and I am just starting to see now uh, that, that next step of my efforts during all of that time. Touring didn't work for me. Um, working at a job and, and you know, doing uh, different shows while working a job didn't work for me. It took me to actually go out on my own and say, screw plan B, and I'm gonna try making cowboy boot videos so that more people understand who I am 
as a person and the music that I want to create and the, 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 the effect and the legacy, I guess, that I want to leave in this world um, to, to, to actually get to, the, to a point where I'm actually starting to see some, some uh, feedback, some progress. So it takes a long time. So it's definitely about patience and just continuing to, to keep at it. I mean, I'm always reminded by the story that my, mom's, that my mom likes to tell. When uh, I was a child, I was up in the Adirondacks. We would go to the Adirondacks quite frequently. And there was a chipmunk near the, the camp. And I decided that I wanted to try to catch that chipmunk with a little butterfly net or a little fishing net or something that was just nearby. So I spent hours trying to get this chipmunk and everybody in my family was like, Oh, you're not, you just stop. You're like, you're not going to get it. What's the point? I'm like, no, I want to get that chipmunk. So I would miss it, miss it, miss it. It would run back in the hole and then I would sit and wait for it, you know, chat it up with um, the folks and then when it came back out, I'd go back out and I'd try to catch it. And finally, I brought that um, butterfly net down on the chipmunk and you could see it like boom, boom, jumping, trying to get out. And I was like, I got it. I got it. And my mom came out and was like, oh, you know, he did actually get it. That's crazy. So he, she always tells that story. And um, she says, after that moment, I was like, um, I, I believed that he, he could pretty much do anything that he set his mind to. So um, it's, it's, it's about drive and dedication, but also patience for me. I feel like I'm always trying to catch that chipmunk now in real life. Right. Well, now tell everybody how they can get in touch with you, your websites, both for your boots and for your, uh, your music, your YouTube and your website. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, I can always be found at jeremiahcraig.com. Uh, there's links to every, everything that I do there. Um, and on YouTube, if you just search Jeremiah Craig, or even if you just search cowboy boots, I should show up on the first page. Uh, and, on any, and on any music streaming platform, search Jeremiah Craig, that's Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Amazon Music, you know, whatever you use to listen to music, I'll be there. So even just, you know, if, if you just talk to your phone and say, search Jeremiah Craig, I should show up on that first Google page as well. So I'm pretty easy to find. I make it real easy for everybody. All right. Okay. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for being on the program. It's been a delight and I'm looking forward to continuing enjoying your content every week. Thank you, Bill. It's been awesome. I, I've, I had a great time. All right. Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for being on the program. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm The Arthropologist. If you enjoyed this episode of The Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work, you can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I'm a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm The Arthropologist.